We're continuing our Lenten series on forgiveness, and today ask the question, what do we do with an apology? But today's Bible story drops us right into the middle of the story of Joseph and his brothers, as you heard in the children's sermon. And I've got to tell you, there are not enough therapists in the world to help Joseph and his family. They were a mess. This is a family story of favoritism and deception, of lies and struggle, of rejection and taunting and sibling rivalry. It's a story of hurt and hope and generational love gone awry. No one is innocent in this story, not even Joseph with his Technicolor dream coat. A colleague of mine this morning uh, or earlier this week said Joseph's family puts the fun in dysfunctional. So you heard a little bit of of the recap from Amanda, but for those of you who don't remember Joseph's story, Joseph is the youngest of 12 sons of Jacob, and he is Jacob's favorite. And the other brothers know it, and they resent him for it, most especially because Joseph had a particular way of rubbing it in their faces. And when given the chance, his other brothers took him and threw him in a pit, and they tore up that favorite coat of his, And they thought about leaving him to die, they thought about killing him, and eventually they decided the least of these options is to sell him into slavery, and he gets carted off to Egypt. And lots of things transpire in the middle, but years later, a famine hits the land, and and Jacob sends Joseph's brothers, who hadn't seen Joseph for decades, to Egypt because he's heard that they have grain. And they didn't know that in the course of that time, Joseph had been a key player in interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. They didn't know that he had risen to some level of power and that he just so happened to be one of the advisors over the food supply when his brothers came begging. After uh, trying to get back at his brothers by accusing them of being spies and of stealing, He finally decides he's going to throw a dinner party for them and reveal who he is to them, knowing that they surely thought that he was good as dead. And when all those brothers have this moment of reunion, they weep. And then they go home and they tell their father, Jacob, that his favorite son, Joseph, is still alive. And Jacob is overjoyed and he brings the whole family to Egypt. And then after that moment of reunion, Jacob dies. And that's where this morning's text picks up in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. So listen now for the word of God. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept and fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. 
But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Amen. There are not enough therapists in the world to fix Joseph's family. So it's a good thing there's a God and that God doesn't shy away from a mess. Perhaps there's something helpful in knowing that a family this messed up can make it into the Bible. Because if God can work in and through Joseph's family, that gives the rest of us a measure of reassurance. Because if we're being honest, all of our families are at least a little bit dysfunctional. It doesn't matter how perfect you make things look on the outside, I don't know a family that if they're being honest when we tell the stories of our family from generation to generation, that there isn't at least a little bit of a mess. Do you ever look at um, someone's family portrait when you go to their home, one that's like framed and beautifully hanging on the wall? You know the one, the one where you're all in like color-coordinated outfits, and you look at it and everybody's smiling and you wonder, I wonder what the real story behind that picture is. Because most of us are pretty good at cleaning things up and making those photos look really good. But the story behind those pictures is always more complicated. I'm guilty of it too. I posted some pictures from a recent vacation on Facebook this past week, and someone in this congregation uh, commented on the wall and said, your kids are so cute. Where's the real one where they're in a headlock? (laughs) But it's also more than that, right? Behind our family pictures are often decades of hurt and frustration, of love and betrayal, of sibling rivalry and family feuds, of illness and loss, of some of the highest highs you can share with people, and then the arguments you don't talk about that happen behind closed doors. Maybe you're sitting in the pew next to a loved one this morning knowing that getting out the door included a fight you haven't quite recovered from yet. Or maybe your loved one's not sitting next to you for that very reason. Maybe you haven't spoken to a family member in a long time because of a wound that happened years ago but still hasn't healed. Maybe there's a family secret that no one talks about, but you're pretty sure it's why your uncle's not invited to Thanksgiving. None of us are immune from the struggles and hurts that come with being family. Because love requires that we dare to get close, and getting close makes us vulnerable. 
which is probably why we're most likely to hurt the ones that we love the most. And Joseph's family was no exception. So the question in today's text is, in these cycles of love and hurt that we live in, what role does forgiveness have to play? What happens when someone offers an apology? What happens when someone tosses that wrench into the family system simply by saying, I'm sorry? Today's Bible story is one of those pivotal moments when a family has a chance to choose a different path than the cycles of hurt that they've been caught up in for years. And it starts with a plea for forgiveness. I'm not sure I would call it an apology. It's more like a non-apology apology. Joseph's brothers go to him and say, Dad died, but he told us to tell you to forgive us. There's not an I'm sorry anywhere to be found. And Joseph has no way to verify if his dad even thought that was a good idea. He is completely aware that the request for forgiveness might be motivated by self-protection or guilt or an attempt to manipulate him right after his father's death. It's definitely motivated by fear. But regardless, there's a moment in which they've asked for forgiveness. And three things happen. Grief, grace, and God. First comes the grief, the one that you heard Amanda identify. Joseph wept, and his brothers wept. What comes pouring out first is the pain and hurt of decades-long conflict. We all know family stories where an estranged family member reunites at the death of a loved one, and Joseph's story is no exception. They were weeping because their dad had died. They wept because no one is innocent in the story. No one is fully in the right. They wept because under that hurt somewhere, there is still that trace of love that endures. They wept because crying is cathartic. It's what you do when you've been carrying around pain and it finally comes rushing out in this plea of forgiveness. In fact, scientists have studied human tears and discovered that humans are the only ones that cry emotional tears. Tears that, if measured, actually have trace elements of that stress hormone that helps you feel relief. Forgiveness is not possible without letting go of some of the pain. So first comes grief, but then comes grace. Joseph, for whatever reason, in this moment in the story, decides to receive their apology and let go of the hurt and the fear that have separated them. Now, it's important to note that he doesn't just brush it off. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay. It's okay that you sold me into slavery and separated me from everything and everyone that I knew and loved. He doesn't pretend like the past harm was okay because it's not. He also doesn't put himself in a position where he's likely to be harmed again. It's important to note that a lot of time has passed before this moment of forgiveness. And Joseph now finds himself in a position of power which comes with a measure of protection. 
So in Joseph's case, this becomes a turning point in a new kind of relationship with his brothers, but it needs to be said loud and clear that grace does not mean submitting again to your abuser. Instead, grace is a moment for a fresh start. Desmond Tutu says that forgiveness means you're given another chance at a new beginning. It doesn't change or erase the past. It doesn't expect that you forget what has happened, but grace extended is about the future, the way that we will move forward together. And for Joseph, that means it's a new way of being family, one of care and provision in a time of famine. It's a new way that chooses a fresh love over fear. So first comes great grief, then comes grace. But grief and grace are only possible because of God. Harold Kushner wrote, to be forgiven is a miracle. And a miracle comes only from God. God's forgiveness is something that happens, that works inside us, not inside God. It's something that frees us of the pain of the past so that we can be different people, choosing and acting differently in the future. The most interesting thing I think about Joseph's story is that God is primarily in the background of this whole story. If you read Joseph's story carefully, God is not the kind of grandiose cosmic actor in the clouds that we often think of. God exists in this story in the micro, in the ever-present source of peace who keeps opening up doors for life every time this family's story seems to hit a dead end. God doesn't will or cause most of the family conflict or strife. In fact, I firmly believe that God does not will our suffering. When Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good, he's not saying that God willed the many challenges that Joseph has endured. Instead, he's affirming that God has been with him in the valley of the shadow of death all along. That with God, pain and death do not get to have the final word. God keeps making a way. And that way in this story includes the miracle of forgiveness between Joseph and his brothers. So why is this good news for us? Because sometimes I think we expect God to work in those sweeping, powerful, cosmic, apocalyptic ways to save the world. We believe that grace moments or God moments in our life have to be the kind of like bright, shining light on a Damascus road transformation. But Joseph's story, Joseph's story is a reminder that God does some of God's best work in the minutiae of our lives and our families. God works in the mess of our day-to-day and our dysfunction, in these moments of forgiveness and healing where a future didn't seem possible, in those moments of grace that break the cycle of hurt in a way that offers new life to everyone in the family. Joseph gives us hope that God is with us
working where we sometimes least expect it in those transformative grace moments where forgiveness forges a way forward. After this moment of forgiveness in the story, I'd love to tell you that uh, everything about it is roses and sunshine, but Joseph's family is not perfectly resolved. When we love up close, it's always going to be a little bit messy. But they place their trust in God who is capable of working through the mess, just as God has always done. They place their trust in God who keeps offering this miracle of forgiveness, moments of resurrection, and a way forward where there wasn't previously a way. So as we make our way to the cross this Lent, we prepare ourselves to witness God's ultimate grace for the whole world through the forgiveness and love of Christ. But we do so knowing that God has always been in the business of forgiveness, working in and through the mess of our lives to break us open with grief and grace so that we can know the depth of God's love. Family's messy. Forgiveness is messy. But it turns out God can work miracles with a mess. Thanks be to God.